I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Are you finding it challenging working from home? The temptation to snack can add pounds. It may also cause heartburn. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Digestive distress is often the first sign of COVID-19. What symptoms should you be alert for? People under stress often experience flare-ups in their irritable bowel syndrome. We'll ask a gastroenterologist what can be done for IBS. Heartburn is one of the most common digestive disorders. What causes it and what can be done to prevent it? Proton pump inhibitors often work, but they also have side effects. Natural approaches might offer relief. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, what's the best way to manage your heartburn? In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, the controversy over aerosol transmission of the coronavirus may have been resolved thanks to research from the University of Florida. Investigators there report they were able to isolate viable SARS-CoV-2 in aerosols at a distance of 7 to 16 feet from infected patients. This is the first time researchers have been able to demonstrate that viral particles found in the air can survive and infect cells. This viral transmission occurred in a hospital room where there was good ventilation, highly effective filtration, and UV air purification. It challenges the conventional view that only large droplets transmit the virus. The World Health Organization has held that maintaining a distance of six feet is adequate. Professor Lindsay Marr, an expert on viral spread through the air, has called this the smoking gun that researchers have been seeking. No one knows how this discovery will affect policymakers. Most indoor spaces do not have the kind of ventilation, air filtration, or ultraviolet air purification found in hospitals. The fact that the coronavirus can remain viable, even in such locations, makes offices, restaurants, bars, churches, banks, supermarkets, and even schools seem far riskier than many people imagine. What about face mask protection? A new study suggests that not all masks are created equal. Researchers at Duke University developed a surprisingly simple way to test a variety of facial coverings. By utilizing a laser light source and a cell phone video camera, the investigators were able to analyze the effectiveness of 14 different masks or facial coverings. They included common surgical masks, cloth masks, bandanas, and N95 masks. The subjects were told to say, Stay healthy, people, repeatedly, while the investigators measured the number of particles that were detectable with or without a face mask. The best facial covering was the fitted N95 mask. No droplets were able to escape that mask. Three-layer surgical masks and do-it-yourself cotton masks were also reasonably effective at stopping the spread of droplets. The Duke researchers reported that so-called gator masks or neck fleeces were the least effective. In fact, they counted more 
particles when people wore gator masks than nothing at all. N95 masks with exhalation valves also performed poorly in this test. The bottom line seems to be that face masks can cut down on particle transmission, but there is considerable variability in effectiveness. As the school year begins, a new report from the American Academy of Pediatrics is raising red flags. There's a common belief that children are less susceptible to COVID-19. However, state-level data demonstrate that the number of children who have become infected has risen by 90 percent during the past month. The states with the largest increase in cases among kids, as among adults, are California and Florida. While most children don't seem to suffer severe infections, some do become quite ill and require hospitalization or even ventilation. In addition, children can readily transmit the virus. Older children appear to be as efficient at this as adults. Washing hands, avoiding crowds, maintaining distance, and wearing face masks are just as important for them. Diseases carried by mosquitoes and ticks like dengue fever, Zika, Lyme disease, or Rocky Mountain spotted fever are of great concern to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, the CDC has partnered with a biotech company called Evolva to develop a new insect repellent called Nutcatone. This is the first new repellent in more than a decade. The EPA has just registered nucatone, which is expected to work as well as other insecticides. This compound occurs in nature in small quantities in both grapefruit peel and Alaska red cedar. Evolva has developed a sustainable process to synthesize this ingredient that can kill certain insects as well as repelling them. It works through a completely novel mechanism which may overcome the resistance that pests are developing to existing insecticide ingredients. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Have you been suffering from heartburn? If so, you have a lot of company. Between comfort food and anxiety about COVID-19, not to mention the economy, a lot of people have acid reflux. What can be done about this common condition? For answers, we turn to Dr. Robin Chutkin, a gastroenterologist on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital. She is founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chutkin is the author of three books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Robin Chutkin. Terry and Joe, it's so wonderful to be back with you. Dr. Chutkin, it always seems to me as if uh, the digestive tract is the number one issue for people in the pharmacy. I mean, first of all, they're buying gobs of antacids. I mean, whether it's Tums or Alka-Seltzer or whether it's, you know, some powerful acid-suppressing drug like Nexium or Prilosec or Prevacid, they're big sellers. But so are laxatives. Americans love laxatives. And then, of course, there's the diarrhea medicine. So these are huge issues for our listeners. And I guess I'd like to start with the question of no acid, no ulcers. That's something that gastroenterologists used to say 
20, 30 years ago. And so we've kind of made acid our enemy. Is it? It's absolutely not our enemy. Acid is the most important component of digestion. Without acid, you can't have proper digestion. And that leads to a host of problems that I know we're going to be talking about during this episode. Well, let's get right to it. I mean, we have these amazing drugs called proton pump inhibitors, PPIs for short. And, and we already alluded to a couple of them, like Nexium and Prilosec, you know, the purple pill. There's been some a kind of bad news associated with PPIs in the day of COVID-19. Can, can you tell us, I mean, it's preliminary, but it's a little worrisome, what, what we have heard on the grapevine? Joe, it's very worrisome. And yes, it is preliminary in the sense that it's a preprint. So the article hasn't been fully peer-reviewed that yet. But this is from the group at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and it's published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, which is one of our very eminent journals in the GI world. And what they found, they did an online survey of over 50,000 adults. I think it was 53,000 and change. And they, they surveyed people who were taking proton pump inhibitors as well as those who were not. And what they found is that there was a significant association between taking a proton pump inhibitor and reporting a positive COVID test. And in fact, people who were daily PPI users seem to have double the risk. And people who are taking PPIs twice a day, as many people with refractory reflux do, they had almost four times the risk of reporting a positive COVID test. So again, causation isn't necessarily proven here. Association is proven. And I think what it really tells us is that these drugs should only be used when clinically indicated, and they should always be used at the lowest effective dose. But Joe and Terry, this is not surprising because we know that these drugs are very good at what they do. And what they do is they block stomach acid. And we know that stomach acid is one of the body's main defenses for protecting against invading viruses, including the novel coronavirus. So when you, when you have a pH less than three, which is sort of the native condition of the stomach, that's one of the main defenses if you swallow something or something gets into your body is a stomach acid inactivates it and destroys it. But what these drugs do, and they do it really well, is they block the acid and they create this incredibly hospitable environment, a now alkaline environment, which is very unnatural. The stomach is supposed to be acidic, and that allows not just viruses, but also bacteria, which is why these drugs are also associated with an increased risk of what we call enteric infections, which is bacterial infections that can affect the GI tract. So it's not surprising, and it is worrisome because millions of people are on these drugs. Now, Dr. Chuckin, I can hear in my mind's ear listeners saying, but what can I do for my acid reflux? I've got to have something. It hurts so much. There is plenty you can do. And, you know, they call acid reflux, there are plenty of names for it, heartburn, reflux, acid reflux, GERD. What GERD refers to, G-E-R-D, is gastroesophageal reflux disease. And we'll typically label somebody as having GERD when they're having heartburn, reflux type episodes more than a few times a week. But I really take issue with calling a lot of these things diseases. Because what GERD really is, what reflux really is, is your GI tract giving you some very important feedback. And the feedback it's generally giving you is you're eating too much, you're eating too much fat, the meal is too large, the meal is too late, 
you're smoking, you're drinking alcohol, you're not moving enough. So these symptoms, like the heartburn, is really a sort of negative feedback loop for your body saying, your digestive tract saying, something you're doing, there's something about what you're putting into the GI tract that isn't good, that we're not liking. And so when these drugs suppress that, yes, they treat the symptoms, but the problem is they don't fix the root cause of acid reflux. And the root cause of acid reflux is not hyperacidity, as you pointed out at the beginning, Joe. The root cause of acid reflux is that sphincter, that little valve between the esophagus and the stomach that's supposed to open to allow the food to get into the stomach and then close after. That valve is opening inappropriately. And it's opening inappropriately because typically we're overstuffing our stomach, we're eating too late, we're eating heavy meals, all the different things that that can cause that. So labeling that a disease is is almost like saying, you know, if you run 50 miles and you feel really tired, you've got over fatigue syndrome, where like, you know, it's, it's feedback, you did something and you had a response. And so for most people, now there are extenuating circumstances, a small percentage of people who truly have hyperacidity who have, there's a syndrome called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. It's so rare that in 25 years of practice, I've never seen it. Most gastroenterologists will never see a case of it in their lifetime, but there are rare syndromes like that. But the average person with a reflux is because they're doing something that their GI tract isn't liking. And so I really encourage people to put on their medical detective hat and, you know, let's figure out what it is and let's fix it with a good diet or lifestyle tip. Well, you know, it's so interesting, that ring of muscle, that sphincter called, if I'm not mistaken, the lower esophageal sphincter, LES, yes. is sometimes affected by drugs. I, we have gotten so many messages from people on a sleeping pill called Ambien, Zolpidem, that they get this really bad heartburn if they're taking Ambien. And it's like, oh, well, maybe it's affecting that LES Maybe it's maybe it's kind of making it lazy and Absolutely. relaxing it. Yeah. And there are a bunch of other drugs that do that too. The so-called benzodiazepines, the benzos. Yes, the Valiums, uh, like Valium. the Xanaxes, all the things yeah. that relax you like that. And Joe, even some unexpected drugs, like some asthma drugs that have theophylline in it. And that's similar to something in chocolate that can cause the same effect. But again, it's just worth pointing out over and over and over again, that nothing is free. So you take a drop to help to help you relax, to help you feel less anxious, to help you sleep. It is going to have repercussions somewhere else in your body, for sure. Some of them that you might not even connect. The average person may not connect the idea that they're taking something for sleep and they're getting reflux. And again, this is where the work that, that you guys do on the People's Pharmacy is so important for helping people make those connections. So it's so much easier just to take an acid suppressor. And if it's not a PPI, it might be something we call an H2 antagonist. Now, ranitidine is gone, Zantac. Uh, we can go into that a little later if you like. But there is still famotidine, Pepsid. There's still Tagamet, Cimetidine. And those drugs work pretty effectively. I mean, there was a time when they were number one bestsellers. So if acid isn't the enemy, and we don't have to suppress stomach acid, but we do need to tone up our LES a little bit. What else can we do? Are there any natural approaches that might help control heartburn? There are. And remember, most people don't have 
a valve that's stretched out. When we do a test called esophageal manometry, we can actually measure the pressure. And we know the average person with heartburn has a normally functioning LES, but what's happening is that they're overfilling the stomach. And the, the capacity of the stomach, if you make a fist closed, that's about the stomach empty. And if you sort of expand your fist, that's the stomach full. Most people are eating three, four fistfuls of food at a time. So they're they're over distending the stomach. And so the valve, they're just sort of blowing it open because they can't close and hold all that food in the stomach. The other really important thing is what time we eat. We know that the stomach actually has a bedtime. And this is really a revelation for most people. The idea that the contractility of the stomach, in other words, how many times the stomach is squeezing to push the digested food down through the small intestine and down to the finish line in the colon, that changes dramatically from morning to night. So the stomach is much more active early in the day. And our bodies generally are. Cortisol levels are higher, et cetera. And then once the sun sets, our stomach really goes to sleep. And so the contractility is much lower, which means that you are going to be much more likely to have reflux, heartburn symptoms, eating the exact same meal after dark versus eating it at four or five o'clock or ideally at lunchtime. And so that's a simple thing that people can do is what we call calorie shifting. And it's, you know, people give the advice, they say, eat breakfast like a king or queen, lunch like a princess or prince and dinner like a pauper. But it really is very, very sage advice for acid reflux and for digestion in general. So that one simple thing of just having a larger breakfast and lunch and a lighter dinner, even if you're eating the same calories, but you're distributing them differently can really, for a lot of people, for many of my patients, that's the only thing they need to do. And, you know, sort of presto, the reflux is gone. Because again, for so many people, it's that overfilling of the stomach late at night when the stomach is less active and less able to push stuff through. That's leading to that LES, that lower esophageal sphincter opening. You're listening to Dr. Robin Chutkin, a gastroenterologist on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital. She's founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chutkin is the author of three books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. After the break, we discuss why stomach acid is so strong. What happens when you take an acid-suppressing drug like omeprazole? PPIs are considered safe as well as effective, and several are available without prescription. What side effects have come to light over the years? How can you get off PPIs? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy podcast is sponsored in part by Kaya Biotics. K-A-Y-A Biotics offers the first probiotics, which are both certified organic and hypoallergenic. All probiotics are produced in Germany under laboratory conditions with high-quality ingredients and under strict regulatory oversight. The three available formulas are created for very specific purposes, such as strengthening the immune system, fighting yeast infections, and helping with weight loss. To learn more about Kaya Biotics probiotics and the important topic of gut health, you can visit their website, kayabiotics.com. That's K-A-Y-A biotics.com. Use the discount code PEOPLE for $10 off your first purchase.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Also by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. Today, we're talking about your digestive tract. Why doesn't the stomach digest itself? After all, it's full of super strong acid. Proton pump inhibitors are extremely effective at reducing acid production in the stomach, but that may come with unexpected negative consequences. It may be difficult to stop taking PPIs after you've been taking them for several weeks. We're talking with Dr. Robin Chutkin. She is a gastroenterologist on the faculty of Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Chutkin is founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness and author of Gut Bliss. Dr. Chuckin, you mentioned pH, the acidity of the stomach. I don't think most people really appreciate how acid the stomach is when there's no food there. So when we wake up in the morning before breakfast, what is the pH of the stomach? To put it in perspective, rather than just give a number, I'll say that it's so acidic that the lining of the stomach has a mucus layer that is there for one purpose only, to prevent the stomach acid from actually digesting itself, the, the lining of the stomach itself. So in order for you not to digest yourself with your own stomach acid, to actually digest your stomach, you have to have that mucus lining to protect it. So it's very corrosive. I mean, it's, you know, it's talking about auto-digesting your own organs and, um, that is like that for a purpose because that's the pH, that acidic pH at which digestive enzymes released by the pancreas and other organs function at an optimal level. And when you change that pH, and as you know, it's, it's a logarithmic scale, when you change that pH, it means that you are not getting optimal digestive activity. And so the food isn't bro- being broken down properly. The food isn't being absorbed properly. So this is hydrochloric acid, right? I mean, we're talking a very powerful acid. If you were to remove some of that stomach acid and put it on a piece of paper, I'm I'm assuming it would eat a hole right through. Yeah, we're talking, you know, car battery level acid for sure. So when you take a PPI, what happens? The pH goes up to six, seven? Yes, absolutely. Definitely above four. So the way PPIs work is they block an enzyme in these cells lining the stomach that produces stomach acid. And PPIs are very, very good at what they do. They block stomach acid quickly. They block it very efficiently. And they essentially create a medical condition called achlorhydria, which is a lack of stomach acid. And we've studied achlorhydria. It's a disease actually that can develop for other reasons. So what you're doing when you take a PPI long-term is you are inducing a disease state in your body called achlorhydria when you don't have stomach acid. And when you don't have stomach acid, some of the major things that happen, again, I mentioned digestive enzymes don't work optimally, which means the food can't be properly broken down into its macro and micronutrients. You malabsorb fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. 
you can malabsorb iron, you can interfere with B12. And that's why you see such a huge array of things that can go wrong when you don't have stomach acid, when you have really induced this disease state of achlorhydria of no stomach acid. The other really important thing besides the enzymatic activity and the absorption and the malabsorption and maldigestion is something called dysbiosis, which means an altered gut microbiome. And I think these days, everybody's aware of the microbiome, how important it is, these trillions of organisms, mostly bacteria that live in and on our body and mostly in our GI tract. And what's really fascinating is as you go from north to south in the GI tract, from the mouth down through the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, and out through the anus, the amount of bacteria in the GI tract increases dramatically from the mouth down to the anus. Most of the bacteria is in the colon. Now, when you block the acid, you totally mess that up. You disrupt that natural order of bacteria increasing from the upper tract down to the lower tract. And we need the bacteria in the lower tract, not in the upper tract. So what these drugs do when they disrupt the pH like this is they cause a lot of overgrowth of bacteria higher up in the gastrointestinal tract, a syndrome called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that can lead to all kinds of problems. And we know that antibiotics are a major cause, but proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, are also a major contributor to SIBO. So they really sort of run amok. I mean, they disrupt one of the most important and integral aspects of digestion, which is this production of stomach acid. And, you know, I tell patients, I know it's fantastic that you take the little purple pill and now you can eat a cheeseburger at 10 o'clock at night and feel fine. But what you've done is you have suppressed your body's natural feedback, telling you eating that cheeseburger at 10 o'clock at night is not a good idea because your GI tract isn't really in a position to digest it properly at that time. And so removing that negative feedback is, you know, quite frankly, a dangerous thing to do long term. Now, tell us, if you would, please, Dr. Chutkin, what are the negative consequences of PPIs? When they were first introduced 20 or 30 years ago, doctors thought, oh, these drugs are great. They thought hardly any side effects, but we've been discovering all kinds of side effects since then. Can you tell us about some of them? Sure, Terry. And I'll tell you, I was one of those doctors years ago who thought this stuff is great. I mean, most people know you can't leave a gastroenterologist's office without a prescription for a PPI. And I remember about 13 or 14 years ago, being at a, a conference, a food as medicine conference put on by the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and hearing my wonderful colleague, Jerry Mullen at Johns Hopkins, talk about the dangers of PPIs. I think it was about, actually, it was about 16 years ago because it was before my daughter was born. And I remember just stopping in my tracks and thinking, what is he talking about? So here I am. I'm a practicing gastroenterologist. I've been in practice at this point a decade. I trained at some of the best institutions in the country. And I was completely ignorant about the drug that I was prescribing day in, day out. And that's pretty shocking. And I think here we are 15, 16 years later, and a lot of physicians are unaware. So some of those complications, Terry, include the increase in infections, and particularly one called Clostridium difficile C. diff infection, which is a growing cause of severe illness, as well as even death in the U.S., Pneumonia, especially in hospitalized patients, kidney disease, cardiovascular complications. These drugs in some studies have been, it's been suggested that they can contribute to dementia. 
bone fracture. It's a really long list and it's a list of serious stuff. And when you think about it, think about where the GI tract is. It's right in the center of your body. It's like the engine. And then you have all these organs that radiate out like spokes. You have the brain and the lungs and the heart and the kidneys. And everything gets fed from your digestive engine. So if the digestive engine isn't working, if you literally really need an oil change, everything else is going to be affected. And again, when you interfere as dramatically as these drugs do with that central process of digestion, you really see the ramifications in all these different areas. So I tell you, my eyes were really open. And I, I thought, how is it possible that I was practicing gastroenterology all these years and had no idea. And I think the influence of the pharmaceutical company is just so strong that not just the lay audience, but physicians also are oftentimes unaware of these effects. Well, Dr. Chutkin, I, you know, I've never had a problem with physicians prescribing PPIs after someone develops an ulcer because they're really helpful at healing ulcers. And, you know, it is a hostile environment after all. I mean, hydrochloric acid can be really hard on the on the digestive tract, especially if there's a lesion there. But that's under doctor's supervision. And hopefully the ulcer will heal in a couple of weeks. Now, people can buy PPIs over the counter without any medical supervision. And although it says, you know, just take for a couple of weeks and then skip a couple of months, I suspect that a lot of people don't read those cautions on the label. And they once they start taking a PPI, like Nexium or Privasec or Prevacid, it can sometimes be hard to stop. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about rebound hyperacidity and how they can get off a PPI if they've been on it for months or years? Joe, these are all really good points. Rebound hyperacidity means that when you've been taking these drugs, and the acid is essentially totally suppressed. When you stop taking it, there's an acid surge. And so what that means is if I started taking a PPI, I don't have any reflux. I can induce reflux if I eat you know, four slices of pepperoni pizza and a cheeseburger tonight at 10 o'clock, I'll have reflux. I'm not in the habit of doing that. But let's say I feel totally fine and I start taking a PPI today. And then after a month, I say, you know what? I want to stop taking this PPI because I didn't really need to take it in the first place. And I just stopped cold turkey. What will happen is that those, those cells that make acid that have been suppressed are now all of a sudden unleashed and they're going to create more acid than I would normally have in my stomach. So I'm actually going to feel reflux, even though I really don't have reflux at baseline. And this is one of the things, this aspect of these drugs is one element that keep people on them because when they try, they take it for a few weeks and they try to go off and then they really start to have a surge and they think, wow, I really need this drug. So I really, I have a whole sheet that I've created for patients about how to taper these drugs, you know, what to do with your diet when you're tapering it, how you can use H2 blockers to help sort of bridge that gap and really doing it quite slowly to avoid that hyperacidity and that that rebound. And that's really important. But you also made a great point about uh, the FDA warning for 14 days. And as you said, nobody reads that and physicians don't pay attention to that either, as well as 
patients. But you're absolutely right also about ulcers. If it's not caused by H. pylori or it's not caused by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, so it is an acid-related ulcer, these drugs are great at healing it. And that is an absolutely appropriate indication for these drugs. Dr. Chutkin, I know you would have a lot of grateful listeners if you could just take the next three minutes and give us a, a quick summary of that information you give your patients how to get off a PPI. Absolutely. So the first thing is you've got to pay attention to your diet because remember, most acid reflux is being triggered by either what you're eating when you're eating it, and how much of it you're eating. So you've got to pay attention to that. You can't ignore that. And what we like to remind people is you it's very helpful to cut down the fat in your diet because fat takes longer to digest than protein or carbohydrates. And they're actually these little receptors in your stomach, these chemoreceptors that can sense the composition of what you're eating. And when they sense that what you're eating has a high, again, back to the cheeseburger, has a high component of fat, it actually sends a chemical message, Terry, to something called a gastric pacemaker, which is a little bundle of nerves in the stomach that determine the rate at which the stomach empties. And it says, whoa, slow down. We've got fat on board. We need extra time. So it slows down the contractility of the stomach. And what that results in is more time for your distended full stomach for that to blow open that lower esophageal sphincter and for you to have reflux. So, you know, the goal when you eat is you want stuff to move through your digestive tract in a timely fashion. And so having a stomach that's really over distended and not moving, that's going to lead to reflux. Stuff is going to back up. So the first thing we tell people is this is a great time to cut down the fat. And, and when I say fat, not necessarily sort of lard and the porterhouse and the, and the, cheeseburger, but think about the pizza. Also dairy is one of the largest contributors of fat in the American diet. And so people having their yogurt every day and things that they think are relatively healthy or putting a lot of milk in their coffee. So really think about the fat content, not just in terms of animals, but also dairy. That's important. I also give people a curfew for eating. And I say, once the sun sets, nothing going in your mouth except water. And remember, this is temporary for most people once they get through that period of that hyper acidity, that acidic surge, which can last anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, they can generally reintroduce some of these things. Again, paying attention to the feedback their digestive tract is giving them about how they're tolerating it. But for the taper, I'll say, okay, you've got a curfew, sunsets, no more food. And I'll also ask people to calorie shift. So I'll say, make a lunch your biggest meal. Breakfast, if you can do it, but that's often tough. So have your largest meal earlier in the day and make dinner lighter. The other thing that's important to do, Terry, is to put at least two hours between when you eat and when you're lying down, even if you're not asleep. And that's because gravity, when you're upright, helps everything empty. Once you're horizontal, things are much more likely to back up into the esophagus because they don't have to travel very far. They're all on the same plane now as opposed to having to go up in the body. So the upper limit of normal for emptying for the stomach is about 90 minutes. So ideally double that. Ideally three hours, but minimum two. So if you're eating at six o'clock, you shouldn't be lying down until nine o'clock. And that includes even reclining on the couch if you're sort of really reclining. So, you know, the, the easiest thing again is just to do the really big lunch and then a light dinner. You don't have to worry about that as much. 
the other thing I ask people to do is to cut down on the triggers, the things we know will open up that lower esophageal sphincter and caffeine and alcohol are prime suspects. So I give, I say you have one cup of coffee a day that you're allowed and no more. And in terms of alcohol, it's a great time to just stop drinking. But if people feel like they must have a drink, not more than one alcoholic drink a day, um, not more than one alcoholic beverage, because those two things, again, are potent triggers of opening up that lower esophageal sphincter. There's another one, and I hate to mention it because I'm such a fan, but that's chocolate. Chocolate also can do it. So what I do myself is I have my chocolate early in the day. My two squares of dark chocolate that I have most days, I'll have it earlier as opposed to later. But those are some of the basic things. The other thing, some people find it's helpful to elevate the head of the bed. Pillows typically don't work because they're just propping up your head, but you can take a couple bricks and put them under the base of the bed uh, for the bed head so that your bed's on a bit of a slant. And that can sometimes help too in terms of things draining more easily. So those are all really helpful lifestyle tips. We've got some good stuff on our Gut Bliss blog, some great tips for that if you if you search onto Heartburn. All very helpful. Dr. Chutkin, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask you about a taper. You know, can you just stop cold turkey or should you cut down the dose gradually? And then can you switch over to something, for example, like Pepsid or Famotidine? Can you switch over to a H2 antagonist that'll make it a little easier to get off these drugs? And then are there any like home remedies that can also help? So all of that after the break. You're listening to Dr. Robin Chutkin, a gastroenterologist on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital. She's founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chutkin is the author of three books, God Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. After the break, we'll learn how to taper the dose of a PPI to help you stop it without suffering rebound. And we'll find out if any other drugs can make that discontinuation easier. DGL, a special form of licorice, might be helpful. What about apple cider vinegar? Some people swear by it. Also, how does COVID-19 affect the digestive tract? When most people think about the coronavirus, they consider it a respiratory infection. In fact, though, it affects blood vessels, the heart, the nervous system, and the gastrointestinal tract. Diarrhea is a common symptom of SARS-CoV-2. We'll also talk with Dr. Chutkin about irritable bowel syndrome. What is it and what can you do for it? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This People's Pharmacy podcast is brought to you in part by Verizona.com. Verizona Lab offers home health tests that allow you to monitor your hormones and health conditions. You can take control of the quantitative assessment of your health and learn about male and female hormone balance, the stress hormone cortisol, leaky gut, gluten intolerance, or your gut microbiome. Take a more active role in tracking your health and take 20% off your first order of a mail-in testing opportunity with the discount code PEOPLE. That's P-E-O-P-L-E, all uppercase. To learn more, go to verizona.com. That's V-E-R-I. 
S-A-N-A dot com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Also by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. Today we're talking about digestive health. We've been discussing the best way to manage your heartburn. We've considered common over-the-counter products and some of their downsides. What can you do to get off a PBI like Nexium or Prilosec? What kind of natural approaches might be helpful? To find out, we're talking with Dr. Robin Chuckton. She is a gastroenterologist and author of three books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. Dr. Chutkin, I wonder if you can help us out with the tapering of the dose. How exactly do people do that? Certainly, Terry. What I recommend is taking one pill every other day for a week, then taking one pill every third day for a week, then one pill every fourth day for a week, And then when you're at one pill every fifth day for a week, stop taking it all together. So if you've been doing the math, that's a few weeks. Now, is that for any kind of PPI, like Nexium or Prilosec? Correct, Um, yeah. And if you're taking it twice a day, the first thing actually is to get it down to once a day. And what about a crutch? Yes. Are there any other drugs that you can use to make this transition easier? Absolutely. So antacids, either calcium carbonate or magnesium containing antacids, they're short acting. They don't prevent reflux, but they can help with the symptoms. They work quickly. The problem is they're a bit short acting. So generally after 30 to 60 minutes, the effect wears off. But if you have mild symptoms, an antacid is great. If you have more significant symptoms, an H2 blocker, again, they block histamine and histamine stimulates the stomach to produce acid. Pepsid, which is famotidine, is safe. Tagamet, cimetidine is safe. Zantac is off the market because of the NDMA, the substance in it that's associated with cancer. So we don't recommend that anymore. But using one of the other two H2 blockers can really be helpful short-term while you're doing the taper or even taking episodically. So if you get off your PPI successfully, which would be the goal here, but you find that you know, once a week or once a month, you overindulge a little bit and you need to take something. Taking a, an H2 blocker or an antacid in that setting is not really a problem as long as it is just episodic. Now, Dr. Chuckin, we have heard that sometimes just chewing gum can help with the symptoms of heartburn. Is that something you found to be true? You know, I haven't really found that, Terry, in my patients so much, but You know, it's interesting because a lot of gum is mint and mint in the GI world, I think, is much maligned. People say peppermint is one of the things that can open up the lower esophageal sphincter. But I have patients use a combination of peppermint, ginger and fennel. And I'll usually have them get fresh peppermint leaves, buy a fennel bulb and fresh ginger, chop it up and boil it and make a tea. And it can be very soothing. So it may be the mint in the gum that's helping because I've, again, found that combination of the mint, ginger, and fennel to be really helpful, soothing for acid reflux for a number of different conditions. So 
Possibly. Well, what we've read, and it was actually published a very long time ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, is that saliva is the body's own sort of natural fire extinguisher. It acts as a buffer, and it also helps wash whatever has refluxed back into the esophagus down back where it belongs in the stomach. So anything that stimulates saliva, which could be some gum. sugarless gum, just might do the trick. I also wondered about something called DGL, diglycerin. Terry, help me with the pronunciation. Deglycerinated licorice. Yeah. 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 DGL is, again, one of those things um, that people find sort of heals a lot of things that ail you in the GI tract. It's sort of in that category of apple cider vinegar where there's not necessarily good scientific evidence, but it's not super harmful. And so, you know, if it helps, not bad to try. With apple cider vinegar, people who have been on PPIs for a really long time and may actually have a more prolonged course of achlorhydria, sometimes apple cider vinegar is, is helpful to them. And so I put the DGL in the same class as ACV, as apple cider vinegar. Fine to try, um, but not necessarily going to be helpful for everyone. So they would sip some apple cider vinegar or do they put it in water? Yeah, they would sip some, some diluted apple cider vinegar. They'd take a swig or two. Okay. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of health professionals, when they hear us, because we, we've heard this from our listeners and our readers for decades, where they say, yeah, ACV, apple cider vinegar helps with heartburn. And, and people go, what? That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard of. Why would you put vinegar in your stomach if you've got reflux? But for some people, it really does seem to work. And I think part of that is because we're lumping when we should be splitting because gastroenterologists are so quick to prescribe a PPI, often they're prescribing these drugs for people who may not even have acid reflux. And so the apple cider vinegar is alleviating other symptoms unrelated, or maybe some of the symptoms people are having are actually a result of the drug. It's achlorhydria they're experiencing. And so the apple cider vinegar is helping to restore some level of acidity. Again, there's not really enough very clear scientific evidence as to mechanistically how this works. But if somebody can take something like this, which is a food product, it's not dangerous when consumed in a, in a sort of reasonable manner, and it helps, I'm all for that. You know, this sort of food is medicine approach. So are we, as you probably are aware. Yes. Now, Dr. <laughs> Judkin, we've been talking about getting off of PPIs, about dealing with heartburn, but now I want to really change the subject. We are talking to you in the time of COVID-19, and we know that this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, actually has a pretty profound impact on the digestive tract. Can you tell us what we are learning about that? Sure, Terry. A lot of the early information we knew came from the early reports in China. But now, unfortunately, we have our own quite large database of patients here in the U.S. to look at. We know that the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, enters the body and binds to these receptors called ACE receptors, A-C-E. And ACE receptors are angiotensin-converting enzyme receptors. And they are throughout the body. They're certainly in the lungs, but they're actually in the GI tract. And believe it or not, there's way more density of ACE receptors in the GI tract, particularly the upper GI tract, than in the lungs. And so one of the 
one of the phenomena we've observed both in overseas studies as well as here in the U.S. is that a significant percentage of patients with COVID-19 have GI symptoms. And in fact, the respiratory symptoms are often preceded by gastrointestinal symptoms, diarrhea, abdominal pain, et cetera. Some of the studies from China suggested that as many as 48% of patients had GI symptoms as well as respiratory symptoms. So we think what's happening there is that the virus binds to the ACE receptors, gets into the cells, the, the cells lining the GI tract, and can create a sort of leaky gut. It can increase the permeability of the cells, and that can result in diarrhea and inflammation, et cetera. But again, a lot of these things are still being worked out. We have seen, unfortunately, pathology specimens from autopsies where it's clear the GI tract is infected. Is affected, where there's massive inflammation, there's even something called ischemia, where the blood supply is compromised. That may also be related to the presence of blood clots, which we now know is a common phenomena. I think the important takeaway here is that COVID-19 is not really a respiratory illness. It's a systemic illness in a lot of people, as many viral illnesses are. It's similar to something called dengue fever in being systemic, which is endemic in the part of the world where I come from in Jamaica, dengue fever is very common in the developing world. And with dengue fever, there's a wide array of symptoms that you can see, including GI symptoms. And that's true for this virus too. So it's important for us to realize this isn't just a flu, the way we think of flu as affecting the respiratory system. And the GI tract has been involved in, in a really large number of patients. We've seen a tiny percentage of people with just GI symptoms alone, but that's under 3% in the study. So that's still really rare to just have GI symptoms and not develop respiratory symptoms. Dr. Chutkin, I was fascinated to read a small study from China that suggested patients who took famotidine, Pepsid, the brand name, actually seemed to do better when they had COVID-19 than patients who didn't get that. So we've heard that there's a possibility that PPIs may be a problem with COVID-19, but maybe this other drug, famotidine, might be beneficial. Have you heard anything like that? Yeah, you know, I'm familiar with the studies, and I have to say, I think that is one of those statistical associations that isn't going to bear out in a larger population-controlled study uh, when we look at larger numbers. You know, we see, we've see we seen a lot of the same thing with the association of vitamin D, but no study yet that has shown that taking a vitamin D supplement is actually protective. So sometimes what this is, is a marker for other things. It's sort of like vitamins, you know, people who take vitamins are generally healthier people. So it's hard to know whether you're really looking at the effect of the vitamin or the effect of a healthier lifestyle. So I think that there's some more sort of detective work to be done, looking at other factors to see whether the famotidine itself was really protective. And I suspect that it's going to turn out that it was not but remains to be seen. And now I'm going to change the topic again. I would really like to ask you about irritable bowel syndrome. We hear from a lot of people who have it. Some of them say it causes a great deal of constipation. Others say it causes a lot of diarrhea. Some people say they alternate between diarrhea and constipation, but all of them are uncomfortable and would like to know what to do about it. 
Well, what is it? IBS. I mean, it's very different from another condition called inflammatory bowel. So please describe it and then what you do to help your patients who complain. So inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, describes two autoimmune diseases, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And they are completely different from IBS and really not related. Irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, I sort of facetiously call it lazy doctor syndrome because what we're ultimately doing with IBS is we are really lumping when we should be splitting. If we carve up that IBS pie, we see multiple different unrelated conditions. So for example, we see undiagnosed celiac disease. We see gluten intolerance, fructose intolerance, lactose intolerance, undiagnosed parasites. We see motility disorders, pelvic floor disorders. We see so dysbiosis, SIBO, and we're taking all of those things because we're not taking the time and the care to figure out what's actually going on. And we're just calling it IBS and writing a prescription. And unfortunately, this is where I have to be really critical of my profession because we're spending so much time scoping healthy people looking for colon cancer that we're not sitting down and really excavating and getting to the root cause of what's causing people digestive distress. So you are absolutely right in the sense that we have IBS-C, constipation, IBS-D, diarrhea, and we have what we call alternators, people who have a mixed pattern. But again, if we look a little deeper... I think 95% of the time you can figure out the more specific cause of this person's IBS, whether it's food intolerance, whether it's an infectious etiology, whether they have an inflammatory condition going on, do they have diverticulosis, do they have gallbladder issues? So it's, you know, just saying it's IBS to me is a sign that somebody hasn't done the really important work of excavating and figuring out what's going on, because of course the remedy is going to be very different. If you have dysbiosis, if your microbiome is out of whack or you have SIBO, then the way we fix that is very different from if your gallbladder is flaring. That might be a low-fat diet, whereas for dysbiosis, it might be really trying to eat more prebiotic foods. If it's a motility disorder, that may be increasing your fiber intake and trying to be more active to stimulate peristalsis. So these are all different etiologies, they're different solutions. And quite frankly, it was really the motivation for me to write my first book, Gutless, was to allow people to be their own medical detective and to figure out what was really at the root cause of their digestive problems. So I really encourage listeners to you know, communicate with their doctors, do their research, read, try and figure out what's going on and not just sort of say, okay, it's IBS, let me take a pill and see what happens. It sounds like if you get a diagnosis of IBS, you really need to say, that's not good enough. Let's look further. And you may need to be part of the detective team. Absolutely. Yeah. You really want to, IBS is just a beginning. Now you want to know why. I would like to also very briefly, because we're running short on time, consider inflammatory bowel. You, you talked about autoimmune. You talked about Crohn's. but What's the role for fecal transplants for people who have been suffering from inflammatory bowel, which is a very serious condition? Can that kind of treatment make a difference? It can. And the, the early studies are really promising. 
It turns out that for a lot of these autoimmune diseases, and we're up to, I think, 100 or more different autoimmune diseases now. So we're talking about Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, multiple different autoimmune diseases. One in four Americans suffer from one or more, more than 50 million people. It turns out for a lot of them, they're not genetic. They're familial in the sense that you might have a genetic predisposition, but the trigger is almost always environmental. And it turns out that that environmental trigger, particularly for IBD in my neck of the woods, for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, for the GI autoimmune diseases, the environmental trigger is often frequent antibiotic use, which can mess up the microbiome and lead to something called dysbiosis, an altered microbiome. And that's really where the disease starts to take root. And it turns out for a lot of other autoimmune diseases, that is the issue too, and so, you know, really think about how we restore the microbiome. We do it primarily in our practice with food, which honestly, if you had told me 29 years ago when I graduated from medical school that I would be treating serious autoimmune disease with diet, I would have laughed at you and said, that is the wackiest thing I've ever heard. But we have great results over 80%, which remission, which is double what we see of the really potent drugs that have bad side effects, including death. And it doesn't work for everyone, but again, for the vast majority of people, when we can dramatically change a diet, we can change the composition of the microbiome, we can quiet down the inflammation. And an FMT is another way of doing that. So FMT, as you pointed out, stands for fecal microbiome transplant, and it's actually not that new. We think about it as being relatively new as a treatment for C. diff that was vastly superior to the previous treatment of antibiotics, but it's actually been around for centuries and really what you're doing is you're sort of rejiggering somebody's microbiome by taking a bunch of bacteria from a healthy donor and inserting it into an inflamed or infected colon to try and reconstitute the population of healthy bacteria. I think a lot of the early studies, Joe, that didn't show that much of an effect was because they didn't couple it with dietary change. We know that if you just introduce the bacteria from healthy stool and you don't then start feeding those bacteria in a particular way, specifically giving them lots of fiber so they can make lots of healthy short-chain fatty acids, you're not really going to get meaningful recolonization and repopulation. So, And the other thing, too, is you've got to use the best stool possible. So this concept of a super pooper, somebody whose stool is really full, chock full of all the best microbes. That's important too, sort of like an organ transplant, right? Your, your transplant is only going to be as successful as the organ is healthy. So it's the same thing. It's not enough to just screen out disease and make sure the person doesn't have HIV or syphilis. You've got to make sure that they've got really healthy microbes. So I think with some fine tuning, with identifying the super poopers who we're better at doing now, screening out for infectious things, because unfortunately there have been complications of stool transplants, including a death from a certain kind of E. coli. And now we know that coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is in the fecal stream. And so that would be something that we also have to screen very carefully for. Um, but once we screen out the pathogens, we make sure it's the stool is really robust and full of the healthy bacteria we need. And then the person who's getting the transplant, we change their diet that combination, I think, is really um, what we're going to see making a big difference for a lot of these patients who suffer from, as you said, Joe, these are very serious diseases. So I'm very optimistic about this treatment modality. 
Dr. Chutkin, it seems like your practice focuses a lot on food. And it doesn't matter whether somebody is complaining of constipation or diarrhea or indigestion or gas. Food is critical to everything that happens in our digestive tract. So can you tell us a little bit about your favorite foods and how you integrate food in your treatment? Joe, my daughter laughs that no matter what's wrong with anyone, I just tell them, just go have a kale salad and you'll feel better. And, you know, she's not completely wrong. So I'll tell you my own magic potion that I have, I wish I could say seven days a week, but probably five or six, is I make a green smoothie in the morning. And when I say green, it's green. I put in generally, I can't just pick one. I have to tell you the whole thing. So I usually use kale and collards. I usually either curly kale or the lacinato kale, kale and collards, some parsley or mint for flavor, celery, because celery has that stringy fiber. And it's really that stringy fiber, that inulin type fiber that acts as a prebiotic that helps to feed the gut bacteria. So I use some celery. I use a little bit of fruit for flavor, maybe half an apple or a little mango or something and a squeeze of lemon. And I blend that up and I can literally feel my microbes singing as I drink that. I drink about 30 ounces of it in the morning and I feel so fantastic because in addition to getting all that indigestible plant fiber that's then going to be digested by my microbes broken down to short chain fatty acids, which are the ultimate healthy substance for the gut. I'm also getting all the live enzymes from the plants. And so my favorite food really is plant fiber, but not ground up plant fiber in a canister from the factory, real fiber from real food. And uh, I'd have to say, hmm, if I had to pick just one, I'd probably say it's kale, not because it's the most delicious thing I've ever tasted, but because I think it's so good for me. And of course, you're getting all those vitamins and minerals as well. Absolutely. The micronutrients too. Dr. Robin Chutkin, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to gastroenterologist Robin Chutkin. She's on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital and is founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness. Dr. Chutkin has written three books. Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. The People's Pharmacy is produced at the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome, online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. And by Cocovia, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of cocoflavanols for brain and heart health, online at cocovia.com. To buy a CD of today's show or any other People's Pharmacy episode, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show is number 1,224. The number again, 800-732-2334, or you can find it on the web at peoplespharmacy.com. When you visit the website, you could also subscribe to the podcast. This week, it has additional information on inflammatory bowel disease and fecal transplants as a possible treatment. 
The podcast is also available through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website every Monday morning. At our website, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.